Welcome to Learning Through Math, the podcast. I'm Laura at I Teach the Why. I'm Karina at Mrs. Cousins 5. Our mission is to inspire ourselves and others to keep learning and improving with passion. And hugs. You can find us at learningthroughmath.com and on Twitter at Laura and Karina. Come and join us on this journey of learning. Thanks for joining us. We are recording this in January of 2022. And welcome to episode 68, Learning About Equity and Early Numeracy. Listeners, we have a special treat for you today on this one. First, we want to give a shout out to Steve Wyborney. I think, Karina, I think he read my blog. Yay! I think he did because he responded to our tweet about when you put check out Laura's first blog below. Yes. Shout out to Steve Wyborney. And he replied, thanks at Laura and Karina. Enjoy the journey. Yay. 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 And we are, our journey is coming up. Our book club is just around the corner in two days from now, Tuesday, February 1st, 7.30 p.m. EST. So if you have not joined yet, you still can. There's still time. Check out the form. It's linked on Twitter, on our website, and in our show notes. Absolutely. All right. So our reflection for this week, Karina, you wanted to share a reflection, I know. Yeah. After our conversation last week and numerous conversations that we've had, you know, in the past, but also just this week, what's been really pressing in my mind is just like building experiences, building experiences. And I think as teachers, it's really, it's it's hard to always have the patience for building those experiences because you want them to get to the point where they need to be and it just takes time. Like right now we are dividing fractions, the whole numbers divide by a unit fraction, unit fraction divided by a whole number. And we are looking at patterns and we're talking about all that, but they're still not ready to go from just numbers to an answer, right? So it's just let's just let what is happening what's happening in this problem and you can't those kinds of problems you can't give them naked problems where it's just out of context you've got to give them the context it's so important because that's the only way that they're going to be able to picture it and visualize it and yeah. are you are you giving them the fraction tiles so how do you do fraction tiles with division it's it's you that's do. not as easy it's not but you and you're going to have to combine sets because right, that's you the have problem. something like three divided by one yeah. half, you need three of the red pieces. So yes. you have to let the kids either put them together, you know, yeah. whatever, because you need three or, or whatever whole number that you're dividing by the fraction. You need yeah. that many pieces. And then you need that many pieces of the little pieces. Right. right. I know. It's that's the problem is that it's not I, I don't have the the amount. Okay. So when you're giving the kids opportunities and experiences, yeah. just use one and two as your whole number right now. So that yes. they can keep building their experiences just with one hole or two holes. And that way you're limiting it, but yeah. they're gonna become very familiar with it. And then they could say, oh, well, if I have three piece, three whole pieces and I'm dividing into half size pieces, well, if I know that there's four half size pieces and two, then I have, you know what I'm saying? There's two more. And so there's six. Yeah. Right. So just limit it. You don't have to use, 
you know, the whole number of nines yeah, or, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I definitely should have done that. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I mean, I, I still have time tomorrow to keep going and keep doing those things, but. Wait, you have 80 more days. Well, really today well, was the 100th day. Yeah. You have 80 more days to give the kids these opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But side note, they're testing on Friday, so I have <laughs> to get them ready for a test. I can go back and, and create those experiences. I will say that they're getting so much better at drawing a picture first and then labeling the picture because here's the thing, like they don't even know what's happening in the problem. And of course they want to jump to, let me put it into an equation. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get, you you know, you're dividing, you're dividing people instead of groups or objects because they're just number plucking. Yep. So it's, listen, it's, it's little steps, but I'm, I am seeing progress and I'm seeing that they, they are drawing pictures and trying to go from, what does this picture mean in an abstract? But anyway, that's where I am. That's good. I, that's all good. Okay, I ha- I have some good news. Let's hear it. Okay, a new book coming out. I did a little blurb, a book review for it, and it's so it fancy. Is- <laughs> It's another one. It's figuring out fluency, addition and subtraction with fractions and decimals, a classroom companion by John San Giovanni, Jenny Bay Williams, and I'm not sure who the other author is because those are the two people I know in in person. But in the beginning of the book, I am the 11th little blurb in the book. Yay! Yay. <laughs> oh my God, I need that book like now. That's I, This is what we're doing right now. I need I this now. I know you I do. I know. Okay. As soon as I get it, you know I'll pass it right on to you. <laughs> I have to put it in my cart. I'll need, I'll need that. Well, listeners, we have another special episode because we have our 10th guest that's joining us today. It Yay. is our friend, well, I'd say she's more my friend than your friend, Mariah Carrington. And we're going to have a great conversation about equity and early numeracy. So thanks for coming and joining us, Mariah. Yes, Mariah. It's nice to meet you. Yes. Karina, <laughs> you know, I feel like I know you already. When Laura and I go to dinner, we're always chatting math and listen to the podcast. So thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here. Mariah, tell the listeners anything you want all of us to know about you. Well, how long do we have? We don't (laughs) have long. I was telling these two earlier, I love that the podcast is is short and you you can really just listen to 20, 25 minutes and walk away with some great ideas. So I'll try to keep this short, but you know, I've been in education since 1995. So it's been a long time and I really chose education because I wanted all students to have really access to great public education just to make sure some of the inequities in our society could could be addressed. And I know we're we're not there yet at all, Um, but I'm excited to talk today a little bit about early numeracy, you know, thinking about pre-K to like second grade and what are some of the changes we can do and to make those years really powerful for kiddos to try to make sure that kids have a great start in their schools and that we're honoring what they know and building on that and also really amplifying their experience so that they leave second grade on fire with mathematics. So that's, I'm really passionate about that. And I I currently work for the U.S. Math Recovery Council, which is a nonprofit out of Minnesota. Yay! I guess I'm here because a few years ago, I was at my first FCTM conference with Laura. No, not with Laura, but I was there. And this crazy lady with red hair said, hey, can you take a picture of me and my friends? And I had just moved to Florida six months prior from Massachusetts. And I said, sure. And then I took their picture 
and I kept running into them. And then I followed up with Laura and, we, you know, she's a hugger. So I was a hugger then <laughs> for COVID times. And um, the rest is history. We've, we've done some cool work together and now we're, we're great friends. So a lot of Laura's intro, like first meeting stories are very similar to this. Can you take my picture, our picture? And then, and then the hugs and then, yeah. And then the friendships forever. Like, this is- well, there, if it's a, that's a good formula, it's working. <laughs> It works. It works. It does work. It does work. Okay, Mariah. Early numeracy. Those sound like some heavy duty topics. And I honestly, I can't wait to talk with you about this. So, you know, I had said earlier, I went into education because I really want everyone to have access. And growing up, the, I knew that what I was experiencing in my town was different than the city across the bridge. And so... Fast forward to 2006, I finally got a job in that city across the bridge. And when I was looking at the data for my third graders, we had 80% of the kids not proficient on the Massachusetts state exam for math, 80%. And I had worked in the district for two or three years at this point. And I remember saying to the principal, "Um, you keep telling me to work grades three to eight as a math coach, but this grade three data reflects on K to three. And what are we doing to support K to three teachers with mathematics and more specifically K to two, because I had been working with the third grade team. So, you know, I, I jumped into some professional development for myself at that point, before becoming a math coach, I had taught third and fourth grade primarily, as well as high school math. And I knew being a K-8 math coach that K-2 was a different beast. Um, And I mean beast in a good way, but I wasn't, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I had the answers for the K-2 teachers. So I pursued professional development for myself and happened to come across the math recovery professional development. And after having my first course, I said to my principal, all my K-2 teachers need this. And so I then had something to offer and became a trainer and got them started in really looking at what our kids bring into the table, what assets do they have? What mathematics do they have that we can build on? And then what is the research-based learning trajectories that can help our teachers understand what the next steps are? That's sort of where my journey started back in 2011 when I I first had this math recovery professional development. But I, I will say prior to that, I had done all of the work that currently is the master's program at Mount Holyoke with Mike Flynn. So those developing mathematical ideas, professional development, I also say is critical for teachers. So I'd already had that training and had led those courses and then within my district. And then I came to math recovery and I was like, whew, we need to know this. It, it brings together for those early, especially the original course deals with K to two standards. And, you know, I have teachers say to me, oh, why didn't I know this? I've been teaching for 20 years. And I always say, hey, you're doing the best with what you know. Now, what can you do differently, right? Don't feel bad about what you did the last 20 years. What can you do differently now? So I really am passionate about empowering teachers to make those changes in their classrooms. But layered with that is this equity piece, right? Mm -hmm. And are we as teachers, as elementary teachers primarily, I'll speak to that audience, are we addressing our unconscious bias. And so two books that have had a really big impact on me in terms of the equity lens. One of the first books that really impacted me is Other People's Children, Cultural Conflict in the Classroom by Lisa Delpit. And I've read that twice now, and I would highly recommend that to every 
teacher out there. It, it's not even about math per se. There's a little bit in there. And she has another book that's called Multiplication is for White People. Yes. I read that as well, but I will say it's not all about math, that book. And I think her original text, Other People's Children, if you had to pick one at this point, I, I would truly go with that one. I read that one. When when did that come out? Like 10, well, 12? No, like 90, 95. And then it was like republished okay. or like a second came out. Okay. But it really helps you think about what your culture, what you're bringing to the classroom and the assumptions that you are making about maybe kids who don't look like you. And, you know, there's an incredible quote in the other book I talk about would be Coaching for Equity by Elena Aguilar. And let me see if I can find the statistic. This statistic really jumped out at me and really speaks to the work we need to do. So listen to this. In 2015, 2016, about 80% of public school teachers were white. Research has shown that white teachers have lower expectations of students of color, which affects student success. Now, this is the other one that really jumped out at me. 75% of white Americans do not have friends of a different race. Just let that sink in. And so most white teachers get information about people of color from external sources, movies, news, social media, and we all know what, how those sources are. Yeah. Um, so that just really shocked me. The 75% of white Americans not having friends of another race, that really shocked me. I knew most of our teachers in our country, 80% were, you know, were white and probably female too at, at that point. So yeah. just those two things, you have to pause. Wow. Right. And, you know, the three of us here, we're all three, you know, white, white women. So what is the individual work we are doing to unpack our biases? And everyone has them. It's natural to have them. But if we don't unpack them and read and, and learn and we're doing a huge disservice to our kids and most of our classrooms are not white. Right. So right. but yet we're the teacher in, in front of kids. And unfortunately, because of the experience that children of color have and have had in the past, we don't have enough teachers of color. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a direct result because of the experience that they have had in schools. And so we have a lot of work to do. And, and math, I think, is an avenue that, you know, it's a gateway for folks. So if we can get the math right, I'm all for cultural competency. And that's what the Other People's Children book and the Coaching for Equity book is going to help folks with. But if we're not providing excellent math instruction to our students, we can be as sensitive and as culturally responsible as we want to be. But if our math instruction still isn't on par, we're not having the impact we need to have for, for, for our yeah. students. So I think it's a combination. And I think so often things focus on, you know, anti-racism, which we, yes, we have to, and cultural responsive teaching. Yes. Um, I also would say Zaretta Hammond's work has been a huge influence on me, but I don't think there's a lot of work out there talking about what does that mean for math? And I think that's, it's starting to, to get there and there are books coming out, but I think if we're missing the boat, if we only focus on anti-racism, culturally responsive teaching, we also have to build the teacher's knowledge around the math, how children learn math, and the research-based trajectory. So I want to merge both. That's my my hope and my passion. And um, we're not there yet. As a, I'm going to be very honest, at the Math Recovery Council, we are not there yet. We are a work in progress on this. And I've been part of our, our DEI committee there. I'm, I'm trying to help with the FCTM, Access and Equity Committee. But you know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you can 
just commit yourself to doing some of your own learning and reaching out. I think, you know, that that will help that will help around the the equity piece. But I, I just think if we're not getting the math right, I don't care how much you love your kids and give a safe environment. Yes, that's all important. But you gotta you gotta get the math right too. So Okay. I <laughs> have so much I wanna say and ask you. And I wrote down a few things. I know that both of you have heard me say this numerous times that we need to stop the bleeding at K to two so we can stop the hemorrhaging at three to five. Yeah. Right. Yes. And then when you were also, when you were talking about how we, when I say we, I mean white teachers, right? When we have a classroom full of kids of color that, and this is not one of my cute little sayings, but I've heard this at so many Title I schools that I've been at, is that we love them to a level one. We love our kids so much, but we're loving them to a level one instead of a level five, which that's where we, of course, we want our kids to strive for level five on the state test. You know what I mean? But, oh, and then you're talking about unconscious bias Mm -hmm. and how much we need to educate ourselves on that. I I did read other people's children years ago. I'm going to have to pick it up and reread it for sure. And Coaching for Equity, is that the book you got the statistics out of? Yes. Then I, I'm definitely, that's going in my Amazon cart, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm participating in the book group right now within our organization around Coaching for Equity, which is great because I, I read it last year and it's nice to now go through it with, with other people. And I was very fortunate with our project. We have a project with the Department of Ed in Massachusetts right now for the last four or five years. And we got to go through an, a workshop. I think it was called overcoming racism, but it was excellent. And they really shared some, you know, they had a vendor that, that, that brought all the partners together and, and worked also with the people who work at the department of ed. And they really did a fabulous job helping us un- unpack history, bias, racism, just the, what the reality is. And when I read that quote, that 75% of white people don't have friends of yeah. other races, it's like, okay, that's what, you know, that's a big reason why we are where we are, right? Because right. if you don't have someone close to you who, who has experienced this country in a different way, and then you're in your own bubble, and we know how busy everyone is, and your life is pretty good, like, of course, you're sort of prone to believing some of these messages that our, our our country gives us with white supremacy, and, you know, just work hard, and you'll make it, right? Like, if you believe that, if you truly believe that is true, then how, what is your judgments on people who aren't, quote, making it, you know? Right. So, and that's, right, that's the ethos of America, right? The American dream, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Right. And it's not true. Right. I mean, there are people working really hard in three non terribly paying jobs and they're working harder than I could ever work and they're never going to get ahead, you know? So there's just a lot to unpack. And, um, I, like I said, I was shocked by that 75%, you know, statistic. and anyways, not to get, not to get political, but we're teachers, we're impacting kids. We have to do the work and we, we have to do the work. It's, It's not fair and equitable if we don't. You know, so, and it's a process, right? It's not just reading a book, <laughs> but that's a right. easy place to start that you can do on your own, you know? that's It's a heavy topic, you know? It's not, like you said, it's not, there isn't a quick fix. There isn't, I can't just read a book and then everything's going to be okay. But 
is there something that you, other than, you know, reading and just getting informed and being educated and, and speaking to people that don't look like us, is there anything that else that we can do as teachers? I mean, I think one thing is you have to check your language. I think mm-hmm. that you want uh, all of us, right? Are we deficit? Are we using deficit language? How are we categorizing kids? So I know when I started working in that district in Massachusetts that I originally wanted to work in you know, to have, you know, I wanted, I, almost like a white savior. I wanted to come in and like save this district. Like, let's be real. Like that's what it was about. In my heart, I wanted them to have a better education than I knew was happening. And currently that district is now in receivership with the state of Massachusetts is in charge of that district. So what hasn't been, hasn't been fixed yet. So the deficit language, right? Are we calling kids, our tier three kids, our title one kids, like that needs to stop. Right. And and I find the only way that can stop that I've seen is when teachers actually have strong information about what the students actually know and understand. So if you've got a first grader, because we're going to talk early numeracy here, and you can't tell me if they can count backwards, if they can identify the numbers, what they can do, then you're just saying, oh, this kid is low. I see them struggling. Right. So how do we provide opportunities for teachers? And it's no shame on the teacher. They haven't been given the professional development, given the assessments, given the support. They're teaching every subject matter in first grade, usually. Mm-hmm. So how do we get the information to the teachers? And then how do we create a system of support for the teacher to make sure they can implement the new tools so they can say, you know what? I'm not talking about tier three kids. I'm talking about these three students know A, B, C, and D. Yeah. Let's celebrate that. And this is their next step. How am I going to work that in and differentiate my instruction or make sure that we have a system in place where if I have a first grader who still can't count a collection of items and we're wanting them to tell me the combinations for 10, but you put out 13 items and the child can't count it yet, what can they do? Do they have one to six? Do they have one-to-one correspondence? What can they do that you can build on? But we have to know what they can do. And we do that pretty well in literacy. We sit with kids, we read with them. We can say, oh, this child can decode. This child's struggling with comprehension. This child can't make inferences yet. We can usually do that in literacy. We have to do that for math. And that's what I loved when I first had the math recovery professional development is that it provided those tools for first grade teachers and kindergarten teachers and second grade teachers and teachers in other grade levels that have students who still are working on some of the K-2 standards. If you don't know what they know, how can you move them forward in a, in a true, strong way? And how can you amplify, right? How do we amplify their experience? So Karina, you're talking earlier, how do we provide these experiences. We all can explain things clearly. We're all strong communicators as teachers, but we know that's not how math, that's not how we construct understanding about math. Right. If we did, all of our kids would get all the answers right because yes. we explained it, but have we provided them opportunities to construct that understanding? Have yes. we given them something that says, you know what, this strategy that I'm using right now doesn't work anymore. What else can I do? What's going through my mind right now is we're, our state is rolling out new standards next year. So how can we tie in maybe, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about math running records, math running records, Yeah, right? I because we too. do reading running records on kids. Right. Why aren't we doing math running records on kids. It, it's like, as you and we all know, math gets pushed to the wayside and science gets pushed even further and poor social studies we never even talk about, right? In elementary school, yeah. at least. So right. how can we, as a K-2 to teaching group, 
and I'd like to even extend that all the way up through 12 and beyond, how can we give our students not only more opportunities and experiences, but where can we as teachers get the time to learn these things? Yeah. And, you know, I work with districts all across the country and mostly in in Massachusetts because I'm leading up that project right now. But a lot of times it's how do we get to the administrator and have the administrator reflect on what have you provided for your teachers with mathematics in the last three years? And oftentimes it's nothing yet. Okay, so let's let's take our baseline. We also know research has shown that elementary teachers do not choose to become elementary teachers because math is their like go to, right? Right? Especially right. K to we love children, we love literacy. That's not to say that they can't be the best math on awesome math teachers, because I'll say the teachers I work with, they leave the course and they are fired up to do better. Um, and they say in the course, I don't want my kids to experience math the way. I experience it. And so, but if we don't interrupt their experience and allow teachers to learn and reflect and have support, they're not going to change their teaching. So it, it comes to what systems is the admin putting in place to allow for the teachers to grow. Now, I know we're in this pandemic now, and I have to give a huge shout out to teachers. I'm part of my role as a, as a nonprofit, we give away tuition scholarships. And we just wrapped up a application process, and I had 60 teachers apply for 40 slots. And so unfortunately, we couldn't give it to all 60, but four. 40 folks out there are going to get the Advantage Math Recovery AVMR 1 course at no cost to them. And they're all doing this outside of their workday. And that's what I want to say. I had two courses this fall with, again, 40 teachers outside of their workday choosing to learn this. Now, as an admin, you have a teacher giving up two hours a week or four hours a week if if we're doing it twice a week and another hour on top of that for the work in between. You got to step up to the plate and provide them some time in school to figure out how to get this done. And so the teachers, I'm just, I said to them in the fall, I can't believe you're doing this this year. This has been the heart harder than the previous COVID years, but they want to get better, right? That's what I wanted to as a teacher. And now I'm passionate about helping teachers continue to get better. But a lot of my work too is, is talking to administrators. I just did an admin session last week for 90 minutes. I said, look, I know you can't come to a 16 hour course, but you need to know what your teachers are learning and we need to think about how to support them. So I think we have to do some more work there as well, because it shouldn't just be a teacher takes a course because they're a go-getter and they want to keep learning. And then they have to figure it out all on their own. That's, it's not fair. We teachers, we always work more than we're supposed to. I push really hard on the admin to step up in that manner and really acknowledge what's needed for teachers and think outside the box to make to make it happen. So I know this podcast is more for teachers, but um, I'm working really hard to, to figure out how to get the principals and the curriculum coordinators and the assistant superintendents to set up a system in place to support the support the teachers. I love all of that. Now, I, yeah, <laughs> Mariah, I know you and I know you, everyone listening probably knows by now I love to read, but Mariah consumes books. Okay. I read books. No, she consumes them. So something I'm thinking about is if there's one book that you could recommend to our listeners who want to further their K2 numeracy knowledge, even if they're a high school, listen, we're the foundation down here, but it goes all the way up. Everything's connected. Which book out of your huge library. And by the way, I found out she likes to read stuff on her Kindle, not or, or her e-reader and, you know, 
instead of like well, book books. I love books, but when I moved to Florida and I had to give away 13 boxes of books, I'm like, I need to get good on the Kindle. And so <laughs> I have. Um, so this is, a, this is a hard question. You can recommend more than one. It's okay. Yeah. We're going to put them all in the show notes anyways. So we have a series of books at Math Recovery. and But I'm going to tell you just a funny story. I, when I first kind of learned about Math Recovery is I was at the NCTM conference in San Diego in 2010. And I went to a session and I left and I was like, I don't know what they're talking about, but I'm going to buy the book and see if I can figure it out. So the first book I bought was Teaching Number in the Classroom with Four to Eight-Year-Olds. We call it affectionately our purple book. And I tried to read it. And I read a lot and I'm a pretty smart person and I work hard. So like it was a lot, it was hard to take in. But then I had the professional development and this is the text that goes with it and, and it made sense. But I have had people in my courses that say, I've read it on my own and I'm you know putting things in place. But I, I will say all of our professional development is based around these books because we know teachers need more support and to, to unpack what's there. But I think that that would definitely be, be one in terms of mathematics. And I also love our red book called Developing Number Knowledge. That is our textbook for AVMR course two in this the multiplication chapter in here is fabulous. Laura, I know you have all these books because of the course you took. I have the green book too. Yes. And the green book is awesome as well. So, and there's a, this is light blue book that I bought too. That was all about, that was over my head at, at that time. So we try to take the research and make it more user-friendly. And so we have these relationships with the researchers and the authors, and we work really hard to help teachers, you know, understand that. And for someone myself who like hadn't taught K-2, I mean, I swear, I, I don't know how the kindergarten teachers do it. Right. I'm in there 40 minutes and I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, I can just take about 40 minutes of it. <laughs> I had a chance to do some some work with when I first got going with the math recovery work. I took a, um, a small group of kindergartners. It was like April of kindergarten. I said to the teacher, you know, give me three kids that you might be concerned about. I'll assess them, see what they know. And I was at a school that it was a K-8 school. The sixth, seventh, and eighth graders showed up at eight o'clock. And then the K-5 to kids came at 845. But about 80% of our kids lived across the field in some apartments. So often if you got older brother or sister, you come at eight o'clock. So I said, give me three kids who are here at eight o'clock sitting in the cafeteria. I'll do some work with them. And so I'll never forget. This is my intro to kindergarten. The first day, you know, there's three kids. And I asked one of them, would you carry this for me as we transition, you know, as we go back to the cafeteria? Well, the other one had a complete meltdown because I didn't ask him to carry something. And I what did I get myself into here? I'm just the third graders, you know, she's like, oh, you, you got to give him something to do too. So I learned really quick. All three needed, you know, something special to do for me. <laughs> Otherwise nothing, you know, it was going to be a meltdown. And I know that she, this little guy had some emotional bag, you know, baggage that we unpacked, but it was great for him to have the three on one with me and to have that eight to eight thirty time every, every day. Like, you know, he loved it, but that was, I remember thinking, oh boy, these kindergarten teachers, you know, they've got kids in centers by November 1st. No other adult in the classroom. The kids are doing what they're they're told to do. Right. And then the teacher's over working with some kids. By November 1st, I've seen kindergarten teachers do this. And so the question I then try to get the kindergarten teachers to reflect on, so what are we asking them to do in those centers, right? Is it based on what they already know? Or is it just what you always do in October or November? So I, I worked with this great team in Massachusetts and they decided to, oh, I, I pushed really hard to the principal. I said, look, I'm coming back to consult and, and help them get started, but we need the data. We need to know what the kids know. So I'll have them do this little subtest. It's like a running record that uh, Laura's mentioning. 
I met with the teachers mid-December. They brought their data. And one teacher said to me, oh my goodness, 80% of my kids can already identify the teen numbers. But that's what I teach in January. Right. And I paused and I was like, okay, where is this going to go? And she's like, I guess I'm going to need to change what I'm doing in January. And I'm like, yes. Right. Like we can't waste their time. We have to have a sense of urgency. Know what they know and build on it. Just because you have these awesome units in January that are about teen numbers. If they already know the teen numbers, how you got to change what you're doing. So, but if teachers don't have the data and don't know, then they're going to just keep doing what they've always done. And so that was, that was a learning opportunity for the teacher, for the team to really rethink what we're going to do in January. So we came up with ideas and then, you know, it's the principal's job to follow through it and make sure they have the support to make those changes and have the time to collaborate and make those changes. But having that, that tool where you can say like a doctor, I can diagnose exactly what each of these kids knows. And if I understand the learning trajectories, then I can shoot my instruction to just be on what they, what they already know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, as the kids get older, that gets way more difficult because the standards expand. And so as Laura says, if we can impact K to two, you're always going to have kids who need extra, right? We're always going to have that. But if we can get K to two down, and so we know kids are leaving second grade, we've got supports in K to two. If I come into kindergarten, I can't tell you one number or say one sequence. And I've got another kid who can already count to 30 and identify the numbers, but you're giving us both the same curriculum. We're in trouble. Yep. It's not that the kid can't learn it. Are we ready to teach it? They can all learn it. Are we ready to do the work to, to teach it? And do we have the supports in place so teachers you know, can do that? I'll tell you one more vignette. I once worked with the second grade teacher. I, w- I was a new math coach. She would, you know, when you're a math coach, you work with the willing. She had like two years left, three years left before she retired. So she wasn't scared. So that's going to happen to me. So yeah, come, come and work with me, right? So I worked with her and I tell you, the kids never let me down. So I would come in and, model a lesson, a higher level stuff than what she was doing at this point. And the kids always roast the occasion. And so after year three, March of year three, she's retiring. And she said to me, you know, Mariah, I've been here 35 years. And I, I always thought they couldn't do it. And now I realize I wasn't ready to teach it. And I wanted to cry. It's a 35 years of kids And she was a very, she was a wonderful person. Like she loved the kids, loved them to level one, I think, but she loved her kids, but she wasn't able to have the expectations that they could all learn it. And she didn't believe that. So she didn't teach it. You know, she had these stories. Well, their parents don't do homework with them. English isn't their first language. You know, I'm going to love them and give them, you know, she was a nice person. She was nice to them, treated them well, but she didn't teach it. And so 35 years of kids experienced that. And that's a lot, that's a missed opportunity, right? And it's not because she had, didn't like the kids, was outwardly racist. No, it's unconscious bias and low expectations based on what she has seen. And, but I, you know, I give her credit that she admitted that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was 35 years in, you know, the kids, they, they won't disappoint. So that's one thing I always say to math coaches. If you have some teachers that are exhibiting some low expectations for kids, right? You, you hear them talk about, they're low kids or so-and-so can't do this, or they complain about the homework not being done. That's all coded language. It's all code, right? How do you show that teacher that kids can do it? And so often that's you go, you 
going out of your comfort zone and walking to a class where, you know, you don't have connections with the kids yet. And I know as a teacher, when I taught third grade, I had those babies all year long, right? And part of being a good teacher is knowing your kids. So when you walk in cold to a class that you don't really know what the kids know, you have to assume that they can do it. And you got to come with an engaging lesson and you've got to let the kids talk and you have to amplify their voices. And that when the teachers see their own kids doing that, that can sometimes be the, the little pebble that gets the teacher to start thinking, oh, maybe it's something I need to do differently, right? We've got these kids for six, seven hours a day. We can do a lot with them, but we have to believe they can learn. We have to hold ourselves accountable to making sure we're bringing our A game. I cannot say thank you enough. <laughs> For yeah. coming on here and and having this amazing conversation with us. I seriously. <sighs> wow. All right, listeners. Do you want to say anything before I wrap it up, Mariah? I just want to say I love teachers. I think we have the biggest hearts out there. And I wasn't a perfect teacher and I wasn't the perfect math coach. But I just think you need to just keep learning and be open and if you do that, you'll, you'll be better for your kids. And I know that's why we all went into teaching because we wanted to have an impact on students. So let's make sure we're having the most positive impact as possible. And if, you if you're not investing in yourself in math, be that squeaky wheel and tell your principals, I need some math. You know, I, I want to learn more about the math and, and also dig deep and think about the, that statistic, right? And mm -hmm. um, we have to unpack the, the poison it's poison. We, we've been fed poison in this country and we have to realize that. And I know that sounds kind of radical. My husband's always like, slow, you know, calm yourself down. I'm like, no, we, <laughs> we, we get all these messages of what's normal. Right. And you know, what hair is normal? What, what is the, like, we have to unpack that. So I might give you some other books to put in your show notes, just about like the unconscious bias and racism that you can um, maybe add to your show notes for, you know, not really math related, but I think it's really hard work that we have to do. For sure. Listeners, your challenge for this week is to think about three kids in your classroom who you call, quote, low, get to know at least three things that they are able to do. If you want to share it with us on Twitter or send us an email, please do so. Thanks for joining us. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. We invite you to join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag learningthroughmath. We'd love to hear your feedback. Make sure to tag us at Laura and Karina. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. To you too.